And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, October 16th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, an enduring small business contractor program appears headed to the sunset. Plus, development of better military explosives and propellants never ceases. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, federal contractors should pay close attention to a government acquisition website for any banned products and services. That's because a new contracting rule puts some teeth behind the Federal Acquisition Security Council's power to remove items from government supply chains. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, tell us about this new rule and what it covers and when it becomes effective. It was published by the Defense Department, the General Services Administration, and NASA last week as an interim rule. So this is a new federal acquisition regulation that will put some power behind what the Federal Acquisition Security Council can do to get risky products out of federal supply chains. It will require contractors to monitor SAM.gov, that's the big acquisition website for the government, to see if the FASC has issued any removal or exclusion orders. Removal orders are something that's already in federal networks that they want ripped out. Exclusion orders would be on the front end of a procurement and basically say, don't include this in what you're delivering to the government. These new acquisition regulations will go into effect as an interim rule on December 4th until something changes. They'll be included in all new solicitations, and then contracting officers will work in in those months afterward to include the new regulations in contracts that already exist through changes. So these are coming pretty fast. And you mentioned the Federal Acquisition Security Council. How do they move forward and operationalize all of this? It was created by the Secure Technology Act of 2018. So it's a relatively new thing within government. Uh, The council is chaired by the Federal Chief Information Security Officer, And it includes representatives from the General Services Administration, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Defense Department, and a couple other agencies. So, So some big buying agencies there and national security relevant agencies there, too, because this is all about potentially removing things that have a national security concern. Chris DeRussia is the federal CISO. I caught up a little bit with him about the FASC and and how they plan to move forward. Let's just be blunt about what we're talking about. We're talking about taking companies potentially off of the ability to bid for federal contracts and ripping technology out of current environments, potentially, right? That is is why that is such a big, weighty authority. And there's a lot of information here around how is that going to work. Well, the question is, what products and services is this group known as FASC going to focus on? I mean, we all know about the Huawei and ZTE, the Chinese telecommunications switcher gear companies, long been banned from federal networks, and there was a rip-out order, I think, a couple of years ago. What else is going on that they're trying to get after? Well, right now, it's really unclear what specifically the council plans on banning. I asked Russia that explicitly. He said he can't provide a whole lot of comment on that right now. He says that the FASC is just trying to work on standing up its capacity and resources to be able to handle potential removal or exclusion orders in the future, which is, as he said, a pretty big deal when you're talking about how big the federal government supply chain is. We can look to those past bans that both 
the executive branch and Congress have passed. There was the Kaspersky ban, the Russian cybersecurity firm that was banned back in 2017. As you mentioned, there was the Huawei ZTE ban that was passed by Congress in 2019. That also included some Chinese surveillance technology suppliers as well as five total Chinese firms that were included in that ban. More recently, the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act bans agencies from doing businesses with companies that rely on some Chinese semiconductor manufacturers. So semiconductors are a concern. So there's a lot of concerns swirling around foreign-made components that go into information technology. But what exactly it's going to be going forward, we, we can't really say for sure. And is there a FASC process for all of this? I mean, earlier we had executive orders. There were binding operational directives. I think that's what happened in the case of the Kaspersky lab. How do they plan to do this with respect to communication and process? Well, the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is the internal information sharing agency for the FASC. So we can expect them to kind of take fast decisions and recommendations and, and share them among federal agencies. Externally, as we mentioned at the top, contractors are just going to see this pop up on SAM.gov. That's as far as we know about how they're going to communicate about these things externally. I talked to several federal contracting experts. They say this could be the end of Congress kind of getting involved in banning companies like with the Huawei ban. That was a huge deal in Congress when that happened. It puts some more deliberative process behind this in the executive branch. But we see things in Congress kind of play out in the open, whereas with the FASC process, it's going to be a little more opaque. I spoke with Tracy Howard, who is a federal contracting attorney at Wiley Wren. We don't know, are they going to put out one order every couple of years, or are they going to come out with 10 every three or four months? Their process is a little bit of a black box, so we don't really know what they might be considering and won't until an order comes out. And somehow that all has to get translated into contracts because if it's a FAR rule, that means it's going to have to be in contracts and contracting officers are going to have new clauses to add to contracts. That's the thing about this new rule is that it essentially creates a blanket clause in contracts that contractors have to monitor SAM.gov to see whether something has been banned. Right. Uh, So Contracting officers won't necessarily have to go in and say, this firm is now banned in each and every single contract. It really puts the onus on contractors going Right, but that clause has to be in there, and so it's going to have to get into contract writing systems and the whole rest of it. Well, for those contracts that have to do with information technology that have that component to them. And what about how the FASC is going to evaluate whether to ban something? Because all of these products come with lobbyists. Yeah, we do know a little bit about their process. Uh, they they issued a regulation back in 2021 kind of laying out their internal processes, and they have something called relevant factors when it comes to evaluating potential risky sources here that they want to either exclude or remove from federal systems. Some of those factors include things like the functionality and features of the covered source, whether it's you know accessing data and information systems within federal networks. Of course, there's the you know foreign uh, concern, foreign ownership concern that play, plays a role here, and whether there could be something that is just of concern because it's controlled by a foreign entity in a country that isn't so friendly to the United States. And then there's also just certain standards that are put out by NIST. They'll actually advise the FASC because they're a member of it on just good security standards. So there's a few basic 
factors there. But again, we don't know specifically what they're looking at at this point. Anything else contractors should be looking for here then? Yeah. In addition to monitoring SAM.gov, once this becomes effective, the services and products that are going to be covered by these orders are also covered in the performance of a contract. So it's not just delivery, it's maybe what you're using to carry out a contract, whether it's you know an IT system or whatever. And that's a little bit more vague than what exactly you're delivering to the government. Howard pointed that out to me. Contractors need to be you know, paying attention to what they're actually using as far as back office type functions as well, potentially. And then companies need to be kind of on the ball and understanding their obligations here because as Howard pointed out, not complying with these directives could lead to breach of contract or even potential false claims act allegations. So you might want to have some dedicated supply chain security personnel going forward. That's another bit of advice from uh, the contracting attorney, Tracy Howard. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, development of better military explosives and propellants. It never ceases. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The National Armaments Consortium is a coalition of industry groups. Its members work on the next generation of ordnance and the energetics that power them. At last week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference, I got an update on a weapons systems summit coming up soon in Huntsville that will combine three parts of the consortium. The Naval Energetics Systems and Technologies, or NEST, the Aviation and Missile Technology Consortium, and the Defense Ordnance Technology Consortium. All three are eligible for the Defense Department's use of other transaction authorities. I spoke with the Vice President for Customer Engagement at the National Armaments Consortium, retired Brigadier General Al Abramson. OTAs is a really great thing. It's a tool that Congress has allowed us, the Department of Defense, to use as a tool to get after the next round of capabilities. And so 1 to 3 November, we're going to have a summit in Huntsville at Warner Vaughn Braun Center. And it's going to be the first time that we bring the consortiums that are part of the National Armaments Consortium, which consists of DOTSI, AMTC, and NEST. DOTSI is out of Picatinny. AMTC is in Huntsville. And uh, NEST is out of Indian Head, the Navy folks. And we're bringing those programs together the first time that we've ever done that. And we're going to brief some government requirements to our members, about 1,000 members, 1,070 members that we have within the National Armaments Consortium. And we're going to brief those government requirements to our members and try to see if we can get some prototypes out to the warfighter as quickly as possible. And what is it that is required here? I mean, energetics, and they're part of a system. They're part of a system. Great question. Whole host of things. And I was talking to somebody earlier about we need to get those, what those requirements will be briefed. So we have all armament systems, if you will, that covers the boundary from sensor to shooter. So we may get a requirement for barrel construction, barrel wear. We're getting more and more of our energetics are wearing out our barrels much more rapidly than they have in the past. Now, does the government at this time want to have a conversation and do a requirement for improvement on our barrel? Remains to be seen, right? So that requirement or that summit is happening 
one November. We've just got that it's going to be about 50 requirements given. And what we need to do is get those specific requirements out to our members and to the audience so that we can generate some further interest. Right now we have about 400 people that have already signed up for that. We're going to have a really good time with government and industry interacting together, getting after some requirements. Yes, because if you develop a super-duper energetic, as you say, there might be downstream effects that might be not fully understood, such as the physical barrel, the metal wearing out through which the projectile travels. Absolutely. That's the type of thing you have to... That's the type of thing. So it's really a systems cycle look at the whole issue of of putting something on a target. That's a correct statement. That's a correct statement, yeah. And just out of curiosity, there is a new replacement rifle in the Army for the M4. They have a long, elaborate name for it, Right, right, right. Lord forbid they should call Next it the M5. Next generation squad weapon. It, yes. 6.8 rounds, so they have a new one. Six, Up from 5.6. From 5.6, so there was a study done about five years ago now. 5.56 and 7.62 were the two ones that we were using, and so 6.8, without getting into classification, is really about the sweet spot that provides the lethality that we want our trigger pullers to have as these wars, if you will, and aggressions kind of continue. We want to have that great balance between what that 5.56 and that 7.62 was able to provide our warfighters. Plus, if you can standardize on one size, then you can focus the organic industrial base and the suppliers externally on one thing and ramp up really fast. That's correct. And then if someone reaches in their pocket, they don't have to worry about whether they're getting the 7 or the 5. This way they'll get the 6.8. But I want to make sure in no way are we moving away from 7.62. Are we moving away from 5.56? There is a place for those munitions in our formations. It's just that we've got a better round, that 6.8, which is a sweet spot, that will primarily go to those trigger pullers that are at the forward front. and really Cavalry, special operations. Ex- and so absolutely, absolutely. And what is the energetics development component breakthrough for that round? Right, and so mostly within that round, it really is the propellant, what type of propellant, because that round doesn't explode, if you will, but it's the propellant and the engineering process that puts that munition together. When I first came over to the armaments enterprise, I thought it was going to be a simple scientific project. In my past life, I worked in the chem bio arena, which is really science and biology and all those kinds of things coming to bear. But really within the armaments community, it's an engineering fate to make a munition as lethal as it is at the size of which it is. And it's really kind of an engineering change thing that we go through sure. to make it. So so the propellant is the propellant, but how you put that munition together will ultimately end up in certain types of capabilities that it has. Plus there's the engineering to get it exactly precisely right times 10 million. Right. And so another thing that I learned during the armaments and ammunition enterprise, precision and accuracy are two different things, right? Because we can be precise... But we want to make sure that we hit it all the time, a particular target. We also want to be accurate. It's hitting exactly where we want to hit. And those two metrics are measured separately because it has to be precise and it also has to be accurate. Right. You don't want to be able to hit consistently the side of a barn. You want to be able to hit consistently the keyhole That's a correct through the, uh, through that the is a correct, barn door. That's a correct statement. Tell us about the Joint Energetics Transition Office. What's going on generally yeah. in energetics? So very recently, the Department of Defense... They had a study of just completing a study, the National Energetics Plan. Today, our armaments and our energetics are really based off of the science that our grandfathers, if you will, were using. And a lot of those technologies are still being used and put into place today. And the Department of Defense said we need to get over the horizon 
energetics, explosives, capabilities as we develop these new munitions. And so that National Energetics Plan has said and established what they call a Joint Energetics Transition Office that will consolidate the Army, Navy, Air Forces, Marines, energetic requirements under one office and say, I understand what the services requirements are as we build these new energetics. So the Army is not off building one in its silo that doesn't have any use in another services. So this JETO office will be the one to consolidate all of the services requirements as we look at and as we are nested to building over the horizon energetics propellant capabilities for our emerging weapon systems. So I think a great opportunity for us to start building what are those munitions, what are those weapon systems that we will need in the United States to continue for us to defend our country moving forward. And when you say over the horizon, you mean next generation technologically, not necessarily firing it so far you can't see it anymore. Both. Both. It's got to start somewhere, right? We've got to have that propellant that will push it over the horizon, literally, but next generation at what types of technologies, what type of energetics that are in the laboratories today that would provide tenfold more energetic power, more propellant power that we are currently putting into our weapon system. So not just a better gunpowder, but maybe something we haven't heard of. That's the correct A hydrogen bullet or Uh, something. Absolutely. Atomic bullet. Atomic bullet. Directed energy, right? All of those kinds of things are now coming into the umbrella of munitions and how do we control that? Because that's kind of over the horizon. We don't see directed energy in squads and not too much proliferated throughout our formations. But... One day, that might be one of the ways that we use. Yeah, so in that case, the the energetic would not necessarily have a projectile on the front of it. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. the energy itself you're beaming Absolutely. over there. Absolutely. Well, when you put together a joint office, I mean, both the Army and the Navy, let's say, fire shells yeah. out of things that generally look like they operate by the same mechanism, Correct. whether it's a ship-mounted gun or a howitzer or yeah. something, mm-hmm. and they both have weapons that men and women pull the trigger on. Yeah. When you have a joint office, how far does that go before it devolves into, well, we need sort of, so, well, we're the Navy, we have to have this, we're the Army, we've got to have that. I mean, is there a lot of commonality in the energetic search among the services? So, so there are, right? And so today there is an office that is currently the Department of Defense has delegated those authorities to the Army, and the Army has further delegated those authorities to the Joint Program Executive Office for Armaments and Ammunition at Picatinny Arsenal, and that authority is called the SIM Commission, Single Manager for Conventional Ammunition. And to your point, if those services have issues with those munitions, they now have a single belly button to go to, that SIMCA, Single Manager for Conventional Ammunition, and talk about what those issues are. But now we're looking at it holistically, and that JETO office is going to do that same thing to resolve any problems that any services have. Hopefully, as it stands up, will be the mechanism, the single belly button to resolve those problems. Because ideally, you wouldn't have a Navy version of the 6.8 millimeter round and an right. Army version and so on. Right. Rightfully so, right? So today, in that 5.56 and that 7.62, back to that example, JPO Armaments and Ammunition, as a SIMCA, builds all 5.56s for the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. They do about 90% of today's conventional munition. It has to come through the SIMCA, and we're providing the service, or they're providing the services, their munition requirements, as you will. 
Now, in some areas, the United States is running out of things because yeah. of what we shipped to Ukraine. Yeah. And Lord knows what Israel Correct. situation will produce in terms of demand. To include their counteroffensive in Ukraine. I mean, there was an offensive portion and there's a the counteroffensive in all of those mine munitions, if you will. But go ahead. Sorry. Well, my question is, what does the defense industrial base look like from an energetic standpoint? Yeah. Are we so, self-sufficient and do we have capacity? I think, one, your question... Are we self-sufficient? Yes. Do we have capacity? Clearly, all of these things that you're talking about has been putting a strain, if you will, on the defense industrial base resiliency as it relates to the demand signal for energetics and explosives and propellant. It absolutely is. As part of the National Energetics Plan to look at over-the-horizon capability, it's also looking at improving the defense industrial base resiliency and firming that up and going through the process of facilitating, modernizing, and expanding the capacity of said explosive plants, propellant plants, and having a munitions kind of campus in and around the United States. So there are concerted efforts today that there is an acknowledgement that we are putting a demand and a strain on that industrial base, and we're trying to build that back up. But it doesn't take overnight, right? It's not a light switch that we can do it overnight, but we're in the process of getting that resilience. Plus, you have to have economic incentive for people to want to set these things up. That's a correct statement, right? So oftentimes within the industrial base where there's energetics involved, there's very little commercial application. So it's hard. Natural gas community will want to be involved, right, because they deal with explosives mining community. They deal with them. So you have to find those commercial entities that may want to kind of get on board and do their own investment to get part of this process to help build up the defense industrial base resiliency. And again, it's not a light switch. It doesn't happen overnight. There are some things that have to go into play, but we're in the process of building that resiliency back up to help the strain that we're currently putting on the energetics community. And just a quick question. The manufacture of energetics is not like mixing a box of cake mix. It's pretty high-tech, pretty precise, and takes some real skill, doesn't it? You would be surprised, but one would argue we would offer that a large cake mixing capability is just the same in certain circumstances, in certain steps with building an explosive component it's the same thing. It's still a cake mix. It's still a mixer. It's still an auger that you have to have. So there are some commonalities. And the interesting point to that is we're now bringing those folks into discussions with us and say, well, since you guys are making these big candy things with these big candy machines, how can you apply that for energetics? And understanding where the similarities are is a great thing as we move forward for the next generation energetics. Just make sure you know which one you can light up a cigarette while you're mixing and <laughs> which ones you can't. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Retired Army Brigadier General Al Abramson, now with the National Armaments Consortium. We spoke at last week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference. There's more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still to come, as the world turns, the House Speaker meltdown enters its third week. But first, an enduring small business contractor program appears headed to the sunset. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The 8A program, it's a piece of federal jargon that's come to symbolize how the government helps small businesses get their fair share of contracting dollars. Now the underlying assumptions of the 8A program are under challenge in court. Could this be the end of 8A? We get analysis now from the managing partner of Center Law and Consulting, Barbara Kinoski. Barbara, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate you having me. And I'm going to read back your own sentence, and then you can translate it into English for us about what's actually going on. A company called Ultima Services has, quote, asking the court to enjoin the government from exercising options to 8A contracts with contractors that received the rebuttable presumption of social disadvantage for admittance into the 8A program. So what's going on? Well, Ultima is owned by a white woman who is ineligible, well, I wouldn't say ineligible, could apply, but under more rigorous criteria to the 8A program. So she's back in court again, asking that SBA and the Department of Agriculture remove certain NAICS codes out of the 8A program, which are areas that her company pursues business opportunities in. So what has happened is, and what's very interesting, Tom, is I always assumed in all the with the, all the 8A clients that I was working with, that it was a rebuttable presumption with emphasis on the word rebuttable. And I always presumed that somebody would be looking at that to ensure that applicants met both the social and the economic. The economic is pretty binary. It's just a math issue. But the social, I thought, was a little more complicated. And little did I know that SBA was not reading them at all. Right. So to put it crudely, there could be black 8A owners that are wealthy and don't have any disadvantage, but maybe presumed to be disadvantaged based on one criterion. And there could be white companies that are presumed not to be disadvantaged who are very poor and trying to get their companies out of nothing to get to establishment with federal contracts. I mean, that's kind of a cartoonish way of putting it. But is that what's going on here? I would say, well put. I can't improve on that at all. That's exactly what's going on here. Now, in applying to the Agriculture Department for certain NAICS codes, certain industrial codes, this company, Ultima, is not taking on the SBA, which administers the 8A program. In general, it sounds like they're taking a very narrow approach to trying to undo 8A parts of it at a single department. Correct. But this is going to have, as you know, broader implications And in fact, SBA is already looking at how they're going to interpret social disadvantage. It's interesting because, as you know, when the 8A program was established, it was wide open. I mean, you could sell contracts, you could do whatever, you could get contracts of a limited value. And now there has been internally, through regulatory means, a narrowing of the 8A program, but not through the court system like this has happened. The the 8A program has, let's say, narrowed down, I'm not going to say because there was a lot of incidences going on of selling contracts and things like that, where, you know, they had to do something. So there's been a continual narrowing of what the ADA program has been doing, you know, from the heyday to now. But this is really severe on the impact on the ADA program. I first started following, they used to call it minority contracting many, many years ago in industry. And 40, 45 years ago, it was difficult to find contractors if you wanted to expand your business to 
people that were disadvantaged. But in that half century or so since those types of programs really got started, there are minority-owned companies with great technical, financial, and managerial resources that can compete with the biggest and the best companies. Fair to say? Uh, Yes, and they are. Absolutely. Which means that the 8A program and other similar programs in industry, in some sense, achieve the goal of equalizing that playing field. Yes, really good point. The interesting observation I have, though, is that the 8A program has continually had studies on it, though, that the success rate of those that it should be helping, the ones that don't have the resources in the 8A program, are not successful. After the nine-year program, there is a, a very low rate of success on continuation of those businesses. All right. So there are still challenges. We're speaking to Barbara Kanoski. She's the managing partner of Center Law and Consulting. And so this lawsuit at the Agriculture Department seeking to undo those so-called rebuttable characteristics, why do you think that has much more profound effect potentially on the 8A program than earlier efforts and the continual narrowing it that you mentioned that SBA itself is doing? Well, SBA is now going to have to look at each individual applicant and determine whether or not they're qualified. I've known applicants that had PhD from Harvard University, and the question may arise of, wait a sec, you have a successful company now, and you got a PhD from Harvard, so should you really be in the program at all? And I think they're going to have to really examine all those applications now and make that determination. All right. So your article, your blog is entitled, Could This Be the End of the 8A Program? What would a program, do you think, look like to replace it on the presumption that there are people that are disadvantaged of all stripes and that are deserving of an extra look for federal contracting? Well, an interesting observation, too, is maybe that by letting all the companies in, there are companies that should never be in the program. Obviously, the ones that have you know a lot of advantages shouldn't be in the program, but also those who can't succeed, maybe they should not be in the program too. So it's kind of interesting in that we're now looking at a little bit of a slice and dice of who should be in. They're not going to be reevaluating, I presume, those that have very little ability to succeed, but they are going to be evaluating the social disadvantage. But I think that the government likes to buy from those that it can buy from easily, particularly at year end. And, you know, there was a recent DOD solicitation where there were so many proposals that were submitted that they decided not to evaluate any of them because they couldn't evaluate the 200 proposals. So I think that now we're going to be looking at what's next. And I think that what's next is the Alaskan Native programs because they have no restrictions on them whatsoever. And the government can always give them a contract. And when they're no longer small, they just add another one. So I think what's going to happen is the ADA program is going to be less desirable than the ANC program. Yeah, it's almost like Animal Farm. There are some companies that are more disadvantaged than other companies, and so it goes and keeps subdividing further and further. But on that issue of their lack of success after exiting the 8A program, I guess the question is, how does that compare to any other company of a similar size and maturity in its history and the success rate of companies in general that are that size that may not have been in 8A? That we don't really know. We don't know that. You're right. But if you are getting some source contracts or you're competing in a very limited pool for contracts, 
then after you're out of that very limited competition area and into the, the full world of competition and you can't survive, then that tells me maybe you shouldn't have been in the business to begin with. All right. So for those that are thriving, that are doing work for the government under the 8A program, what's your advice to them now to make sure they don't get rebutted you know, out of the 8A program? I like that. Rebutted. It's an action verb now. I would say, well, SBA has issued guidance on submit your social disadvantage statement if you don't already have one. And like I said, those companies that I represented, they already had one. I'm on the forefront of this. So I would say get that statement in right away. And you're going to have to make it look really good. I'm not, I'm not talking about creating a false narrative, but I am saying that it's going to have to be, I assume we don't know what the guidance, that the training that the SBA has given its staff on evaluating these essays. I think it's going to have to be very moving because one of the things that the plaintiff has asked for in the Tennessee case, Ultima, is to see all the narratives. And regarding the rebuttable presumption, there's language in the regulations that says that somebody else could file a action against SBA and say that they don't believe this company is qualified. Now, how you would be able to get that information or even know that they applied, I don't see how anybody could contest that because the narratives aren't public and the application process isn't public. All right. So that means there's some FOIA going on. Uh, Yes, a lot. I'm assuming a whole lot. Barbara Kanoski is the managing partner of Center Law and Consulting. Thanks so much. Oh, Tom, thank you so much. I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, as the world turns, things still seem chaotic in Congress. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now for the next 30 minutes, as the world turns. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. As the world turns, most of it is probably scratching its collective head at the United States Congress. As the latest crisis, Israel's war against terrorists, enters its second week and President Biden pledged support. So what can we expect this week on the Hill? We turn to Bloomberg government congressional reporter Zach Cohen. Zach, good to have you back. Sure thing. And, of course, there is the speaker parade beauty contest, I don't know what you call it, but that does have implications for everything else that's going on in Congress. Right. Absent a Speaker of the House since the ouster of Kevin McCarthy earlier this month in a bipartisan vote, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to move legislation through the House or even through committees. The Speaker doesn't just set the floor schedule, but really sets the structure for the rest of the committees and the policy priorities. So absent some sort of agreement by Republicans alone or maybe in some unlikely bipartisan governing coalition with Democrats, it's going to be very difficult to move appropriations bills ahead of the mid-November deadline to fund the government or take up key authorizations like the National Defense Authorization or the the five-year farm bill that needs to be reauthorized soon. That's a little bit of an irony because it was the Republicans in the House that were moving the bills in so-called some semblance of regular order before their blow-up politically. That's right. Republicans were making actually more progress in the House than the Senate was in terms of moving bills, although it is obviously easier to move bills through the House where you only need a simple majority compared to the Senate, where there are 12 bipartisan bills, just none of them have actually passed yet. 
House Republicans had hoped to pass all 12 individual appropriation bills for the current fiscal year, fiscal year 2024, which started a couple of weeks ago. But a couple of those haven't made it past the floor yet. Actually, the majority haven't. And so we're likely looking at another continuing resolution at this point, another stopgap bill, the length of which and the various riders that we approach to it, it's too early to say. But absent some real turnaround here, it'd be very difficult, not just for the House and the Senate to pass individual bills, but to conference come together on a final agreement on all 12 of them. Right. And if there is, for some crazy reason, no speaker by the end of the CR, then the House couldn't vote on a new CR. The only twist to that is the potential for maybe uh, an empowerment, so to speak, of the current Speaker pro tempore, Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina, the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, in something of a ministerial role. He's very limited in what he can do in this sort of stopgap method between McCarthy and whoever McCarthy's successor will be. But there's talk of, of trying to give him a little more ability just to bring bills to the floor, but that would require a majority vote in the House, either uh, among Republicans, a unified or mostly unified Republican conference or some sort of bipartisan agreement on that front, especially given the number of crises in the Middle East and Europe. There is an increased interest in trying to find some way of moving forward on these important matters, even while there is no official Speaker of the House. Right. So in the end, even without a Speaker, and they probably will have one by then, if it comes to a shutdown versus a, another continuing resolution, there is a mechanism by which the House could avoid a shutdown. There's always a, a mechanism. When there's a will, there's a way. The question is, what can the majority of the House get behind? And right now, the majority of the House can't even agree who's leading the House. And so it's going to be very difficult to avoid a shutdown absent a newly elected Speaker. But a newly elected Speaker isn't required in order to avoid a shutdown come November 18th. We're speaking with Zach Cohen. He's congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government. And getting back to that farm bill, I mean, there's some authorizations that need to happen, right, besides agriculture? Yeah. In the stopgap bill, there was, for instance, an authorization of the Federal Aviation Administration through the end of the year. Another key authorization does need to pass by the end of the year in order to keep up the underpinning of our entire aviation industry. There are two different bills on that front. The House passed its version. The Senate has its own version, but is actually stuck in committee over an issue in regards to pilot training and how much pilots should be able to use uh, virtual or, or non-real training as part of their training hours. That issue has been standing out there for a long time. And so separate from any issues in the House, the Senate has its own issues with that bill. The Farm Bill, I think, is probably in a similar scenario. I was talking to Agriculture Chair Debbie Stabenow. And she said, I can still keep talking to G.T. Thompson, the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee on a farm bill, a five-year reauthorization of various you know, SNAP, food benefits, conservation programs, farm subsidies. But Stabenow and the ranking Republican on the Senate Agriculture Committee, John Bozeman, still need to work out some really key distinctions in order to get their bill out. And so there are some substantive differences that need to be addressed in both of those bills, even before we deal with the procedural question of how do they get through a chamber that doesn't have a leader crazy, <laughs> but it's been going on for some time now, so we're sort of getting into this weird stasis. And what about the military holds on promotions of generals? This goes back to Senator Tuberville. A couple of them slipped through. I was talking to a general last week, though, at the Army show who should have retired back in April, but his successor nominee is waiting in limbo here, so it's not universal, even though a couple have gotten through. Any signs that that could crack or somehow the Senate could find a way around that one? 
Yeah, Tuberville for months has basically prevented the quick confirmation of hundreds of these senior military promotions. You know, the rank and file of the military still get confirmed, but these senior generals uh, haven't been able to get confirmed with a couple of key exceptions, as you noted, uh, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, C.Q. Brown, the former chief of staff of the Air Force. But he was only confirmed as well as uh, a number of really key members of the Joint Chiefs because Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer essentially forced a vote on those nominees, uh, a step that he was not interested in really taking because it rewarded essentially Tuberville's decision to hold up these nominees and basically gave into his demands that a vote be held on these nominees as Tuberville continues to protest the Department of Defense's funding for troops who are traveling out of state in order to seek an abortion after the fall of Roe v. Wade. And so it's unclear how the rest of these hundreds of nominees get across the finish line. You might hear something about that in Congress this week. But given the fact that there are judges that the Senate needs to confirm, uh, a key EEOC nominee will probably be confirmed on Tuesday. And then uh, another minibus, these appropriation bills that they want to get through. There's just not a lot of floor time to deal with anything closely resembling filling all these military vacancies. And what about the National Defense Authorization Act? That was moving along. There were still some seemingly intractable issues, but now both tractors have stopped. Yeah, both the House and the Senate have passed their individual versions of the National Defense Authorization Act, the annual military policy bill. The key question now is how they work out the differences between them. The House has a version, for instance, that would strip away this DOD ability to help troops who are seeking abortions out of state, you know, and cover some of their travel costs. That's not going to fly with the Senate or certainly with the White House, uh, who's fighting with Senator Tommy Tuberville on that exact provision. But there are conferees that have been named and those negotiations can take place to try to hash out an agreement between the House and the Senate on a bicameral, bipartisan basis. But a path forward for actually moving a conference report or any sort of actual agreement remains to be seen. And just quickly, there has been some reporting early on, Bloomberg had too, about some members of Congress were trying to force the issue of federal employees back to the office or resolution of this whole limbo type of question. That seems to be set aside for the time being because of everything else going on. We could see some of this litigated in the context of the spending bills that are being held up. There was a provision in one of the House bills, the one for financial services and general government, that actually would have zeroed out funding for agencies that don't return the federal employees back to the office to pre-pandemic 2019 stature. Now, that seems unlikely to get into a final bill. The Senate's not going to go for that. Uh, And the White House wouldn't go for that, even though the White House is itself pushing to bring more federal employees back into offices more. But this is something that would need to be negotiated with the unions, something to be negotiated uh, on an agency-by-agency basis, on a case-by-case basis. It's a very complicated issue, and there's not really even a ton of data on how many federal employees are working from home or from the office. So it's something that Congress is very interested in trying to push. It's actually simpatico with the White House on this. But the logistics and the specifics on how to get to that and the actual levels of in-office work remains to be seen. Zach Cohen is congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much for joining us. Anytime. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Navy puts artificial intelligence into practice with low-risk but high-reward use cases. One of them is launch of its first conversational AI program called Amelia to answer thousands of help desk requests in less than a minute. That frees up IT personnel to handle more pressing matters. 
For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the deputy data officer at the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations, Nathan Hagan. And first, you hear from acting Navy Department Chief Data Officer, Duncan McCaskill. What we are specifically trying to do in the Department of the Navy and wider DOD, in partnership with our colleagues in the Chief Digital and AI Office, is to instantiate some guardrails and make it so that we can test, so that we can try, so that we can pilot, so that we can do some things as quickly as possible while maintaining operational security and not throwing all of our rules and regulations about protecting data out the window. So all of that being said, what are some things that I'm really excited about and bullish on for artificial intelligence in the Department of the Navy and DOD writ large? You've seen some things in the press about a tool called Game Changer which is some advanced natural language processing parsing over DOD policy. We have an instantiation of that that we run over naval message traffic that's providing some some great insights and making some data available to any authorized user, something that is extremely high value. Uh, We also have Amelia, which is a component of our help desk, our Flying Speed Naval Help Desk, that is fantastic. And we've done a lot of great work in the unmanned community and modalities of computer vision signals, et cetera. So I think we're, we're doing a lot of great work despite some of the uh, swirl going on in the data and AI community. And Nathan, over to you. First, I would like to note that like AI is very much a tool, and it's a sort of umbrella term that we use across industry and across government to describe really a category of tools and technologies or methods that can be applied to perform some function and or provide insight and conduct an analysis on data. And so I say that because in my office, we view AI as just another widget in our toolkit, right? So there's many, many ways that we can accomplish our mission within the Navy. AI is a new tool that we can leverage. Because of that, my staff, we look at information systems and laying the foundation of our IT structure for the Navy. We don't define the individual mission use cases for the Navy. Uh, So our job is, like, when I describe to someone who doesn't work in government or is outside of the Navy, I say, I'm the IT department for the Navy. And so we're here to help. We're here to make it so that everyone else can do their job. Because of that, a lot of the use cases come from other groups within the OpNav staff, uh, within the CNO staff. And those use cases can be focused on really laser-focused national security issues related to particular weapon systems, or they can be things that might otherwise be described in kind of a mundane way. And Amelia was the example I was going to use. It's a AI uh, use case that we're really proud of within the Navy because it's our first deployment of a conversational AI. And it seems like a really shiny object, but the real value and impact of Amelia as as an example is it allows us to create an enterprise service desk uh, for IT systems that can have around 15 human staff members and answer thousands and thousands of help desk tickets all under 45 seconds Uh, So the user sees an immediate response to address their problem. Um, The value of that is it allows us to perform a really important business function, keep it at a manageable scale, and then invest those resources that are saved as a result of that and the personnel that would be involved and apply that to something that is more pressing to the Chief of Naval Operations needs, which in almost all cases, when I say something more pressing, I mean saving lives, 
shooting a weapon to have impact in the battle space so that our sailors are safe. The Navy's problem is not that there's not enough data, right? There's there's tons of it. There's a treasure trove of data. You know, I think getting insights out of the data, getting information that's usable for decision making is really more of what we're talking about here, separating the wheat from the chaff. Duncan, when it comes to that data strategic advantage, you know, what goes into it and what's the challenge there? Well, if it were easy, we would have already done it. I think we have to remember, in some cases, we have 70 years of tech debt and means of operation. And we're trying to do things with data that our enterprise was not necessarily engineered to do. So the challenge that we have is trying to identify what is of highest value. And for that, we need to be talking to those mission and business elements that have those use cases and then being able to aggregate across all of those use cases and understand this particular piece of data is going to be very high value. It's housed in this particular system or collection. That's something that we need to modernize to be able to get data out at speed and at scale. One of my colleagues, uh, and I, I told him I was going to rake him over the coals for this, our primary cyber advisor said, you know, we're drowning in data in the Department of the Navy. And my quip was, well, at least we know how to swim. Uh, so what's, what's good is that we have an incredible amount of talented people uh, in the department. We have a workforce uh, that really knows what they're doing. Uh, so the, to get to that you know, level of we are really applying the information technology, the data to specific high value mission and business problems, you know, we're working on the IT side. We're working on the system side to be able to get data out. We're working on labeling. We're doing all those things. And it takes time. So our biggest problem, I would say, is, is our own level of patience and being able to uh, see things through. And I'd love to pull on that thread a little bit more because I think, if nothing else, I, I'd love to help dispel some myths around AI about what it is and what it isn't. And, you know, I think you're pretty clear-eyed in saying that it's good for some things, you know, especially for some mundane tasks that aren't maybe perhaps the bright, shiny objects, but, you know, it's, again, a, a useful tool in the toolbox here. But, you know, I think a theme throughout the day has been that AI is not the kind of thing you can just sprinkle over your problems and they are magically solved. In terms of understanding categorically what AI is good at and what it isn't, can you expand on that a little bit more? I would recast the question as not what is AI good at and what is AI bad at. It's how, how should we employ it? And in that vein, we, we should be using methods analytical methods, of which AI is one, to help us get to decisions, better decisions, faster. And you can implement that type of logic across any type of mission set in the Department of the Navy to uh, the realm of computer vision. Is a target actually a target? Is a vessel an enemy vessel, or is a vessel a fishing boat? Is it a, an enemy vessel that's disguised as a fishing boat? Uh, all of those types of things. Do we have uh, in, the, in the realm of insider threat? Are there indicators that someone is engaged in some type of nefarious activity? We don't necessarily want the machine to make that call. We want the machine to be able to tip off the analyst, the operator, the human in the loop of, you know, what are the, what's the likelihood, what's that confidence interval uh, of whether or not this is actually the thing that you think it is. Duncan McCaskill, Acting Department of the Navy Chief Data Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You also heard from the Deputy Data Officer at the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations, Nathan Hagan. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 